I'm Lee Nix, and this is A Memory of Malice. Hello there, loves. Have you heard about my Patreon? Your support will allow me to better this podcast in so many ways. For instance, I couldn't access a lot of the archival news coverage on this case, because the local newspaper archives are locked behind a paywall. Your support will allow me to pay for these subscriptions, and have better coverage of these older, lesser-known cases. Please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash amemoryofmalice. In the case I have for you today, a biker gets more than he bargained for when he finds a dead body in a remote area. The prosecution would have had to rely on purely circumstantial evidence, if it wasn't from some help from an unlikely source. It was early Sunday morning on May 3, 1992, and a lone dirt biker was taking advantage of the broad, empty expanses of land in western Maricopa County. He had wandered onto a patch of land known then as the Caterpillar Proving Grounds. If you look for this area today, you won't find it. It was sold to develop housing in 1997. But back then, it was still largely deserted. Something caught his eye as this dirt biker turned his bike down a dry wash. Near a stand of Palo Verde trees, he saw the crumpled, half-naked body of a woman. Fearing that the woman was dead, the dirt biker quickly rode home to call the police. Maricopa County Sheriff's officers responded to the scene. When they arrived, they confirmed that the woman was dead. She was a black woman, in her late twenties to early thirties, half-nude, and she had the remains of restraints about her limbs. Her neck bore obvious signs of strangulation. Some sources say her hands and feet were tied together, but appeals documents describe a stranger setup. A cloth was tied around her neck and left wrist. Braided wire, described as picture-hanging wire in one source, was tied around her right wrist and ankle. A shoelace was tied solely around her left ankle. It's bizarre. I can't imagine how she was intended to be tied. In addition to the bindings around her limbs and neck, another braided wire and a vinyl strap were lying across her neck, but not tied around. At one end of this braided wire was a metal ring. The police's first witness walked right up to them. Local man Chad Gilliam had been returning home around 1.30 that morning, when he'd seen a truck speed out of the Caterpillar training grounds. The truck was moving like a bat out of hell. It ran a stop sign and sped off towards the I-10. Chad described this truck fairly well. It was white, with amber clearance lights on the top of the cab. Additionally, it was a duality truck. Duallys are a type of heavy-duty truck with two extra tires on the rear axle. Just as the police were learning about the truck, another officer heard a strange sound coming from the brush nearby. He followed the sound and found a pager. Now, I don't want to assume you know what a pager is, so a quick description. A pager, or beeper, was a small electronic device that could receive short text messages. You'd call the pager number and key in your message with the number pad. Fancier ones could get voice messages and sometimes send replies to messages. 
it was a way to get a hold of someone before cell phones became widely adopted. More importantly, pagers were registered, meaning that the police could track down the owner. The woman's body had been identified through fingerprints as Denise Johnson. Denise had grown up in Phoenix, and at the time of her death at 30 years old, she was a single mother of two. Denise's mother, Hester, and her sister, Betty, described how she had drifted into some troublesome friend groups. She was hanging around with people who liked to party, drink, and do drugs. And while these behaviors aren't necessarily malicious, Denise was turning to risky behaviors to fund her lifestyle. Denise earned the nickname Twist Mama for her habit of scamming truck drivers in fake drug deals. Several sources say that Denise was a sex worker, but please note that I can't confirm this. I looked for her arrest record, and I couldn't find it. I found a few charges for a Denise Johnson with the same birth date, but they weren't drug or sex offenses. It's not unheard of for the media to assume that any woman with a high-risk lifestyle is involved with sex work, especially if she's a woman of color. Her autopsy didn't find any evidence of sexual activity, even though she was found partially nude. Autopsies aren't always able to find traces, though. The autopsy did find she had drugs in her system, but we know she was hanging out with a crowd that used drugs, so that's not too revealing. I don't know much more about Denise. It's always frustrating when I can't find much about the victim. I only know that Denise was a beautiful woman, a beloved mother, daughter, and sister, and she didn't deserve what happened to her. Police tracked down the registration on that pager to a man named Earl Bogan. Further investigation showed that Earl didn't use that pager. Rather, he had given it to his son, Mark Allen Bogan. Mark Allen Bogan was a local truck driver living with his wife, Rebecca, at the Casa Real Apartments. The police were very interested in talking with Bogan about his pager being discovered at the crime scene. That interest only intensified when they saw that Bogan owned a white, duality truck with amber clearance lights on top of the cab. They also questioned both Bogan and his wife, Rebecca. She told officers that Bogan had been drinking heavily on May 2nd, the day before the crime. Rebecca had left the apartment sometime around 8.30 p.m. and come back around 11.30 p.m., and Bogan wasn't home. It was 2.03 a.m. when Bogan came home, and his return woke her. She saw scratches on his face. Bogan told Rebecca that he'd been in a bar fight. They also questioned Rebecca about that braided metal wire. She said she'd seen a length of similar metal wire attached to a ring inside of her husband's truck not too long before. The next bit I'm a bit unsure about. I'm unsure whether Bogan initially told police the same story he'd told Rebecca, or immediately changed it when they interviewed him. Either way, he eventually did change his story. Bogan said that on the evening of the 2nd, he'd seen a black woman hitchhiking and that he'd given her a ride. She'd consented to have sex with him, which they'd had behind a building on 35th Avenue between Camelback and the I-10. 
Hi, this is Future Lee. While editing the video, I noticed something. When Bogan says he parked between Camelback and the I-10, you assume it's a narrow area. It's not. After Camelback comes Indian School Road, Thomas Road, McDowell Road, and finally the I-10. That doesn't include the numerous smaller side streets. Where'd you park, Marky? That's a three-city block radius. Can you be more vague? It's almost like you pulled that out of your ass or something. After the sex, they'd gotten into an argument, during which Denise stole some of Bogan's things from his truck dashboard. Denise ran, and Bogan chased after her. He scuffled with her, but managed to get most of his things back. He didn't realize she still had his pager. During this altercation was when Bogan said he got the scratches on his face. What a convenient story. He now has a way to explain the scratches on his face, and also explain any DNA they may find under her fingernails. Bogan said he left Denise on the side of the road. He'd been to the Caterpillar Proving Grounds before, but not for a long time, he said. Cops didn't believe him and got a warrant for his truck. Bogan freely admitted he'd had his truck cleaned that morning, and they didn't find any evidence. No evidence apart from two Palo Verde seed pods in the bed of his truck. Detective Charlie Norton was assigned to this case, and he didn't have much evidence to tie Bogan to the crime. There was some circumstantial evidence, but it was hardly overwhelming. But what he did have were two seed pods. Norton contacted Dr. Tim Helen Jarris, a molecular geneticist for U of A, and asked him whether it would be possible to uniquely match the DNA in the seed pods found in Bogan's truck with the seed pods from a tree at the crime scene. The only way to find out was to experiment, and that was what Dr. Helen Jarris did. The first step was to find out whether Palo Verde trees reproduced through outcrossing. Forgive me for getting a little technical here, but there are two main types of plant reproduction. Self-reproduction and outcrossers. Self-reproduction would mean that each plant is a genetic copy of its parent plant, making it impossible to find unique DNA. Whereas outcrossers fertilize similarly to humans by combining DNA with other plants, making a unique child plant. Luckily, Palo Verde trees are outcrossing plants, so the first hurdle was passed. Next was creating the DNA profiles. Because the DNA for Palo Verde trees was unknown, Helen Jarrus used randomly amplified polymorphic DNA testing procedures to create profiles. RAPID, as this procedure is called, is helpful when you don't have any information about a target DNA sequence. I'd love to explain how this works, but I'm unsure I can. I've only been able to get a very vague level of understanding. However, with this method, Helen Jarrus was able to match the seed pods found in Bogan's truck to a tree at the crime scene known as PV30, so they could prove that Bogan had been at the crime scene but this match wasn't going to be enough to get a judge to admit plant DNA as evidence. They needed more. Investigators gathered more Palo Verde seed pods, both from the crime scene and other areas around Maricopa County, and had Helen Jarrus do a DNA lineup. Unbeknownst to him, they snuck in another sample of PV30. 
Even though they tried to trick him, his results were correct. Investigators felt their DNA evidence was strong enough to be admitted in court. As you might expect, the defense didn't take the introduction of plant DNA lying down. They argued that it was an unproven science and shouldn't be allowed. But after testimony from numerous scientific witnesses attesting to the validity of the process, the judge allowed it in. This wasn't the only problem for the prosecution. They wanted to introduce Rebecca's testimony, but she was married to Mark Allen Bogan. Her testimony was protected because of spousal privilege. Or was it? According to the testimony of one Teresa Bogan, it was not. Teresa was married to Mark Allen Bogan in 1982. When he married Rebecca in 1991, he had committed bigamy, allowing her testimony to be shared in court. With a combination of all the circumstantial evidence, the witness who had seen his truck, owning a similar wire to that at the crime scene, and the scratches on his face, with the physical evidence, his father's pager being at the scene and the seed pods a genetic match to a tree at the crime scene he claimed he hadn't been at in years. It wasn't hard for a judge to find Mark Allen Bogan guilty of murder on May 26, 1993. On June 22, 1993, the judge sentenced Bogan to life in prison. He's currently serving his sentence in the Tonto Unit of Safford Prison in Safford, Arizona. He was the first person ever convicted using plant DNA. The murder of Denise Johnson is a piece of forensic history, but her death has been largely forgotten. It's sad because somewhere out there were two little children who lost their mom, a sister who lost her sister, and a mother who lost a daughter. We should remember Denise Johnson. That's all I have for you today. If you're watching on YouTube, leave me a like and subscribe if you enjoyed the case. If you're on another podcast platform, consider taking a few minutes and leaving me a five-star review on iTunes. Either way, you guys are the best. It's getting hotter out there, so remember to stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>